And I think so often we feel like everything reflects on us. So mm-hmm. if a fellow animal rights person or a fellow vegan does something in a way that I wouldn't have done it, then my kind of unredeemed response to that is, oh my gosh, this makes me look bad. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's not about me. It's about mm-hmm. saving the planet, saving the animals, trying to get some sanity into the healthcare system in this country and around the world. And if I don't like how somebody does it, then I can just do it a different way and Mm -hmm. let them (laughs) do their thing. Welcome to the Vegan Life Coach Podcast, where we coach you to coach yourself. And now it's time to become plant empowered with your co-hosts, 25-year vegan Ella Majors and mindset master Stephanie Aguilar. Hey, hey, Empowered Vegan Lifers, Ella here with my co-host. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Ella. It's Wednesday. It is Wednesday, and I have a surprise for you. Tell me. Well, I have two surprises. I need I need surprises today. Okay. Well, number one, then I'm going to start with the extra awesome surprise. Okay, is that excellent. I found I found a vegan chip that is very reminiscent of Doritos. And it's actually made out of beans. So it's like, of course, it's not like healthy, but it is relatively healthy. And I brought it here for you so you could see it. Bean-filled nacho. I have not... I have not been this giddy for a very long time. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, my love of Doritos. I do. Yes. And sweet chili is the only, it, it's, it's not in any, any stretch of the imagination healthy, but it is the only vegan flavor. But if I could have a nacho that was a little, just a tiny bit healthy, oh. Yep. Yep. So it's, it's bean fields is the brand I'm showing it here on YouTube video. And the first ingredient is black beans. Second is Navy beans, then brown rice. So first three ingredients, pretty damn good and not terrible. You know, it's got some, it's got some oil in it, but if we're looking at comparing it to Doritos, this is going to be such a step in the positive direction. Very good news. Yes. That's very good news. I am going to go find those. In fact, I might, I might Amazon it right now and see where yes. it's at. <laughs> yes. Don't forget. Cause they will make your day. Yes. They've already made my day and I haven't even put one in my mouth. Yes, I did it. <laughs> All right. The other one is that I want to do a sprint round with you today. If you, if you don't mind. I love sprint rounds. Okay. I, because as long as I'm not running. Oh Yeah. <laughs> This is your kind of sprint round then. Excellent. <laughs> yes, because we have such a fabulous guest um, on today's podcast, Victoria Moran of Main Street Vegan. Good friend of mine. She, I was actually, I think my very first interview ever was thanks to her giving me the opportunity to be on her radio show back in like, I don't even remember 2015 or something. Yeah. And it was like before I really came out with all my disordered eating issues and, and 
anyway, I talk about it a little on the, on at the beginning of the the show because I was so nervous and then it was live and then my internet like cut out and I had to call back in. Oh, it was, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I was like, nobody's going to ever interview me again. <laughs> anyway, it worked out. So, but I did not do a sprint round with her and I was like, let's do a sprint round and let's do it with you. Excellent. Ready? I'm going to start with some easy, easy ones. First thing that comes to your mind, they're either or the first ones, and then they'll get a little more challenging. All right. Okay. Let me, let me clear my mind. Yes. Let get me clear get my yourself mind. ready. Except when I clear my mind, then all of a sudden <laughs> I can't clear my mind. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Vegan leather or lace? Leather. Tofu or tempeh? Tempeh. Chickpeas or lentils? Lentils. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Skydive or hang glide? Never. <laughs> no, 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 no. Mm-mm. It wasn't Sorry. an option. No, it wasn't an option there. <laughs> I don't. It wasn't or. Holy cow. Yeah. No, okay, so I, neither. No. I will have to accept that answer, I suppose. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, little, little more involved here. What would be an animal that you share the most or a bunch of qualities with? A dog. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then your favorite oil-free dressing. Oh, uh, primal. I think it's called primal kitchen orange carrot. Okay. So that's one I haven't tried primal kitchen. Is that at Whole Foods? That's what it's called. Okay. I think I've seen it. I think I've seen it. Okay. I, I believe that's what it's called. And there's no oil in it. No oil. It is, it is literally ground up carrots and spices and ginger. I'm surprised you don't make that yourself. I probably could. Yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. have picked it up and now I, now I'm now not without just, it. Right. Okay. I yeah. love that. I'm going to get some of that. <laughs> yes. That sounds delicious. Okay. So now the ne- the last two are going to be a elevator pitch. What would you say to someone who says to you when they find out you're vegan Two two things here? So the first okay. one is vegan. Oh my gosh. That's so extreme. I would laugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What would you be thinking in your head? This is it. I, I would be thinking it's not extreme at all. It isn't extreme. No, it's, it's, I mean, the world opens up when you go vegan, at least it did for me. And it's, it's not extreme, not extreme. There's a lot of other things that are extreme. Being vegan, not eating animals is not one of them. It is. It, it's not. It's yeah. not. Plus, it opens you up to all of these other, like, fruits and vegetables and wonderful plant foods. Not to mention whole communities and ways of thinking. I mean, it's just. It's not extreme. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. How do I get my family on board? I've I've just recently gone vegan, but how do I get my family on board? And you haven't. You have thirty seconds. I would say, listen to this podcast and then, I would have the ep- then I'd have the episode numbers. We've done a whole podcast too, actually on getting your family on board. Oh my God. I didn't even think of that. But that, is so perfect. <laughs> that is fabulous. Oh my gosh. You know what? I bet that's the answer to a lot of questions people ask. That could be the answer. Yeah. Well, we do At have like almost a hundred episodes. So yeah. that's a lot of information. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. All right. I love these sprint rounds too. I think we should, <laughs> I think we should do them between us more often. I think we should too. They're fun. Okay, cool. 
Anything else do you want to catch everybody up on before I talk about Victoria? No, except that my children were beautiful at homecoming. Mm, I saw some pictures and they they really were. What? They they look so, so happy. So full of of joy. Really? Yeah. It was a really great weekend. They had, they had lots of fun with their friends and, and they actually invited me into it a lot of it. So it was just a really great weekend for our family. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I know I did not invite my parents into anything I did when I was 16 years old. Let me just tell you that. You know, I was the same way. Everything they did embarrassed me, but not, I don't, and I do think, I don't think my kids are um, unique for this generation. I think a lot of kids in this generation are very connected to their parents Hmm. and uh, mine are no different. So that's interesting. I didn't know that I'm very disconnected from, uh, from that world. So I'm glad you, I know that's really interesting. It really is. It really is. Like there's literally, I have actively tried to embarrass my children (laughs) and they don't, they, they're not embarrassed. They think it's funny and they, they hug and they kiss me in front of people. They almost always choose to invite me into things and yeah. Well, I still, I still think that says something amazing about both you and them. In oh, my well, thank you. Thank in my you. humble opinion. <laughs> we do have a good relationship. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So great. All right. Let us begin this episode with Victoria Moran. Let me tell you a little bit about her. I'm going to read you the short bio here, and then we're going to put the longer version in the show notes. She's got a very colorful bio with lots of incredible information. So definitely check that out. I uh, Let's see, featured twice on Oprah. Is that, you know, you've made it when you've been featured twice, not once, but twice on Oprah. Seriously. Like that's a dream. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Victoria Moran has written 13 books, 13, including Main Street Vegan and Creating a Charmed Life. Victoria is the host of the Main Street Vegan podcast and director of Main Street Vegan Academy, training vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. A yoga practitioner of 50 years, you guys, and a Yoga Alliance RYT 200, Victoria is working on her 14th book called Age Like a Yogi. Victoria has one of the most beautiful and inviting spirits of anyone I've ever had the fortune of knowing. And that part was me, of course. So let's get to the show. Oh, Victoria, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. Oh, thank you. This is the first time we've done an interview with, with visuals. I know you were on my podcast back in 2016, but that was just voice to voice. This is even more fun. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say this feels very uh, full circle, like a full circle <laughs> moment, right? Because I'm glad you said 2016. I couldn't remember when that was, but I do remember, Victoria, that I was so nervous because you were, it was one of my first like legitimate interviews that I had ever done. And you were so gracious to invite me on your show, but it was, it was radio. It was live, right? Well, it was, and we're still live with the main street vegan show every Wednesday at three o'clock Eastern on unity online radio. But of course we're also a podcast now. So that happens on all platforms and your interview is up, you know, forever and ever. I love the idea of archives and how you can go back and hear what people were talking about, what they were interested in at one point in time, and then follow them and see what's happening now. It's all very cool. 
Yes. Well, I remember like, I think the the internet cut out for me at some point and I lost it. I was like, oh no, I'm never going to get another interview again. I screwed it up. And you were just, you're just amazing. So I'm excited to have you here. You know, the whole thing about screwing up technically, I think it is this great curse of, of the modern era. And I know that a lot of people, you know, who are more your age than my age probably don't have it quite so badly, but I feel like every day, like I'm up against, you know, I never grew up learning how to set up lighting and cameras and getting the right microphone and all that sort of thing. And it's just habit in, in the last couple of years that we have to be so savvy with this stuff. So I think it's just like with health and everything else, you do the very best you can and, you know, sometimes the results are fabulous and sometimes they're okay. <laughs> this is very, very true. I also don't think I was really like out yet. I can't remember what we talked about on that, on that interview, but in terms of my own struggles with uh, disordered eating and, and body image issues, I, I don't think we really talked about that. I could be wrong. Um, wow, I'm not sure. On the one hand, I'm surprised that we didn't because that's yeah. been my history as well. Yeah, exactly. A couple of books about that. But I do recall you had just done something for Shape Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I think that was how I heard about you. Okay. And so you were talking about living in a really good body. <laughs> Right. Yes, that was that was my thing. And then later on, I started talking about my struggles with disordered eating and a, and a poor body image. So we didn't get to really discuss that. And I would like oh. to talk about that a little bit on this on this episode, if you don't mind. We will talk about it today, and then I'll invite you back over to Main Street Vegan, and we'll just make sure everybody knows exactly what's going on with LMHers. There we go. Oh. Well, thank you. Well, you are like I think of you as an OG, like, you know, one of the originals. And one thing I I really do want to also talk about is the word vegan, because you're somebody who embraced that word and has embraced that word and loves to use that word and use that word in your mainstream vegan. Something that I also, when I created Sexy Fit Vegan, a lot of people were like, well, don't you want to use plant-based because you were going to turn people off? And I was like, no, do you see me? I now have like tattoos vegan. Mm-hmm. I love the word vegan. I don't want to shift the paradigm around that word. You've been the same way. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I have belied myself with my face. I felt myself making a face when you said plant-based and, and I shouldn't yeah. do that because I use <laughs> it sometimes myself. I'm not crazy about plant-based for the most part, because it's not clear. And people have such different interpretations of that. For some people, it means vegan. For some people, it means healthy vegan. For some people, it means healthy vegan with no sugar, oil, or salt. For some people, it just means you eat more plants than animals. And as Dr. Mm -hmm. Furman has pointed out, the standard American diet has more plants than animals. They're largely refined and processed, but most of our calories are already plant-based. So what are we really talking about? And some people say plant-based and they mean that they're vegetarian or vegan up until dinner or whatever. So I'm, I like clarity. So in the old days, if you were primarily not eating animals and animal products for ethical reasons, you were an ethical vegan. If you were doing it primarily for health reasons and adding on other health practices as well, presumably, you were a health vegan. 
And most people kind of got both over time, which still happens today. You know, people come in it for one reason or maybe for the environment and they get all the, the reasons. So I think vegan is a great word because at least in terms of the, we do not eat animals, people know what that means. And mm -hmm. it's very hard for a word newly entering the lexicon to be universally accepted. So vegan is a term that was coined in 1944, which seems like a really long time ago, except not really for a word. So it's taken about this long for people to know what it means. So when I started looking at veganism in the early 1970s, wasn't able to do it because of my eating disorder, but I kept trying. People didn't know what it was. It's like vegan. Is that like a planet from Star Trek or something? <laughs> and, and it just, it didn't mean anything. And now it does. And I think that with all the vegan foods that are out there, whether you want to eat them or not, <laughs> they're really helping get the word recognition and, and people know what it is. And I know some people say, oh, well, vegans are overbearing or whatever. Yeah, well, so are some omnivores. I mean, you know, we didn't invent overbearing. <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> I think sometimes vegans get impatient, particularly ethical mm -hmm. vegans, because we see the suffering of so many innocent animals. And this isn't, you know, people talk about one bad day. It's not one bad day. It is unrelenting suffering, birth or hatching until death. And the death usually comes very young. A lot of people don't know that the animals that we eat are in almost all cases babies adolescents. It's, it's such an awful, awful thing that I think sometimes we just want to say, don't you get it? Can't you see it? Why aren't you doing this? And yet another truth is that this cognitive dissonance is very real and people maybe see something and it'll touch their heart for a minute. But then that strong pull of the way we've always done things of this is how my family does it. This is what my friends do. I would be ostracized if I did this thing. So I think we all have to have a, a lot of, of tolerance and, and acceptance and willing to meet people where they are and help them celebrate small steps and all of that, you know, and I'm proud to be a vegan because I do think it puts me on the right side of history. And I'm happy to work with anybody who's, who's even like looking at this path. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. How do you help your, when you're coaching coaches or as they're learning to be coaches, how do you help people deal with those emotions that, that anger? And it is, it's for me, I, I think of it as I have to put up kind of a dam in my brain to not let that floodgate open and because it's so draining and so emotional. And if you really sit there and, and think about the trillions of animals that are, are in pain every second of every day, it's overwhelming and exhausting. How do you help people deal with that? Well, that's very interesting that you're asking me this now, because I have run Main Street Vegan Academy that trains and certifies vegan lifestyle coaches since 2012. So we've had 33 classes. We have coaches on every continent except Antarctica. It's very thrilling. 
but it was only in the last class, the last live Zoom class that just ended a couple of weeks ago, did I bring in an instructor to talk about precisely what you're talking about, this idea of Vistopia. So April Lang, who is a psychotherapist here in New York City, joined to just help with how we can deal with, with knowing something that most people don't know, and we've all had the experience if you're vegan or vegetarian, and somebody says, well, why do you do that? And you start to tell them, and then they say, oh, no, I don't want to know. <laughs> they thought yes. they wanted to know because they thought you were going to say, well, you know, I lost 11 pounds or something. Yes. So the, the kinds of things that she was sharing with, with the vegan lifestyle coaches in the making was a lot of self-care. We just need to really be so good to ourselves. And I noticed this when I was raising a vegan child because my daughter knew things. I mean, I didn't show her grisly videos or anything, but just to say to a kid, well, chicken nuggets used to be a chicken. That's mm -hmm. just like, uh-uh, I'm not going there. And so I felt that I really had to help her have so much support with more vegan and vegetarian friends and, and getting to spend time with animals. And, you know, we're going way back. We're going in, into the 1980s and the first mm -hmm. farm sanctuary didn't come into being until 1985. And that was in upstate New York. And we were living in Kansas City, Missouri. So we didn't have farmed animal sanctuaries, but we actually went to petting zoos, which is not a place that I would certainly support nowadays because I know those animals are all in the exploitation system. But at the time when that was the only way that my daughter had access to be around turkeys and pigs and sheep and, and these various animals that, that people eat, you know, we did what we needed to do so that she could have some grounding for her choice. And I think adults need that too. We need to have people around us who are also doing this, people who understand where we're coming from, especially if most of the people that we interact with don't. And also just this, this way to create around ourselves a level of comfort that kind of protects us from all of the pain and the suffering and the discomfort that's out there. So we don't have to not know it. In fact, we do have to know it. It's everybody's responsibility, especially those people who choose to participate in it. But I think somebody said to me once, you need to find places where you can recognize yourself. And that was just the most beautiful piece of advice because I immediately knew for myself what those places were. And they're cute neighborhoods in big cities. They're clever cafes and coffee houses. They're uh, wonderful art theaters, things like that. That's my thing. Somebody else, it might be the wide open spaces and the beach and the mountains, but whatever it is, if you can find these places where you recognize yourself, it's as if your own being is strengthened. And then you can go out there into the world and face these hideous realities and do your part to try to change them. Mm, so well said. How did you make that connection? I know you've told your story probably a million times, but if you don't mind uh, telling us, telling our audience, that would be Oh, phenomenal. sure. 
Well, I first heard the word vegetarian when I was five years old. I had come home from first grade with the four food groups, and my parents both worked, and this was before daycare. So we had this live-in nanny. She was grandmother-aged, really interesting. She'd studied all kinds of like spiritual stuff. She raised me on reincarnation. She was so cool. But she also wasn't one who liked the government telling people what to do. And when I recited these four food groups, which at that time, it implied that half of what we eat is supposed to come from animals. She said, there are some people who never eat meat and they are called vegetarians. And I could take you to this restaurant and get you a hamburger made out of peanuts (laughs) and you'd think you were having beef. And I'm just thinking like, whoa, there's so much to know. And I don't think I'm going to learn most of it in school. So I didn't know what to do with this because this woman, Didi, she wasn't vegetarian, but I filed it away. I just knew there was something there for me. And then when I was 17, I got very interested in yoga. And again, it wasn't like it was today. We're talking now like the 1960s. And so there were three books about yoga in the Kansas City Public Library. And they all said that if you are serious about yoga, you're going to not eat meat. And so I moved to London, ostensibly for fashion school, but it turned out to be where I started studying yoga and where they had vegetarian restaurants. So I learned a lot more than fashion uh, on that adventure. And so I was able, by the time I was 19, to be vegetarian. And I heard about veganism a couple of years after that through the American Vegan Society. And I really want to put in a plug to any of your listeners who are vegan or or moving strongly in that direction to join the American Vegan Society. It's very cheap. I think it's 20 bucks a year or 25. It's not an expensive thing. But they started in 1960, which is like another era. I mean, Eisenhower was president when they started the American Vegan Society. And what is so cool is that now they have just opened this very, very fascinating place in um, Philadelphia in the historic district that's called the American Vegan Center. And it's where people can go and learn about the history of, of veganism when they go to Philly to see the Liberty Bell and Constitution Hall and all that. So that's really, I, I think, fabulous. But anyway, those were the folks who were disseminating all the vegan information at that time. This was before PETA. This was before Dean Ornish, before any of this stuff. And so I immediately knew it was, this was their phrase, ethically unassailable. It's like, there's just no argument to not do this. But because I was in my eating disorder, which for me was binge eating, periodic binge eating, and then dieting and back and forth, it was awful. It was just, I just couldn't do it. I could do it for a while. And what was so beautiful, Jay and Freya Dinshaw, the founders of the American Vegan Society, Freya is still there working hard. She told me not long ago, she's going to retire at 86, which seems like that's a good vegan retirement age. But, you know, they believed in me. And even when I fell off the wagon, they still treated me like a vegan. Mm. And being believed in it's just so powerful. There's nothing like it. So eventually, after my daughter was born, she was an infant, and I looked down at her in the crib, and I knew I had to raise her vegan. And this juxtaposed in time with my getting really serious about the 12-step program of Overeaters Anonymous. So I was finally seeing that 
if I cleaned up my act spiritually and on the inside, that I could make the choice in what I would eat. And so the combination of really wanting to do this for my daughter and finally being able to know a day at a time that I could do it for myself, that Mm. happened in 1983. And this is not to say that I never had a slip, that I never put half and half in some coffee in 1984, 1985, because I did. But that's my day. That's my day that I committed, you know, not necessarily perfection back in those early days, but it was enough to get me started and get me going. And 37 years, I, I don't regret a day. Mm. Oh, I love this. this. This also brings me to a point I'd love to discuss with you about vegans judging other vegans. <laughs> and, you know, when I went vegan, it was nineteen eighty. No, no, 1995. I was 15. And at that time, the stereotype was more around like hippies, like you, oh, you're, you got to be a hippie. You don't wear deodorant and, <laughs> you know, like you're smelly, you don't take showers, that sort of thing. And it's kind of evolved into the overbearing, kind of up on the pedestal vegan, not only to other, to non vegans, but sometimes to other vegans as well and trying to like catch people and, what do you deal with this in your academy? And just what are your your thoughts on on how we can be more unified as as a movement? Yeah, I'm not sure that we have to be 100% unified. And that's kind of a new concept for me. But as I look at other liberation movements, the um, movement for black liberation in this country, which I'm well aware is not nearly finished, but looking even as a kid at those marches in the South with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and then seeing that there there were other voices as well. The Black Panthers came and and Malcolm X and, and other ways of looking at the same situation. And I think that that's what's happening now in the vegan world. For example, we have a lot of very prominent medical doctors, oftentimes they'll call themselves plant-based and <laughs> won't say mm-hmm. vegan, yes. but they are dietary vegans. That's what I would have <laughs> called them back in the day. And, and they're very much part of the medical world, but with this, this wonderful lifestyle medicine way of viewing things. And then we have other people who frankly, have been around longer in the movement mm-hmm. who come way from the supernatural side. And I consider myself pretty alternative in terms of how I care for myself. I'm not a fan of, of, of drugs. I don't take any kind of pharmaceuticals. And yet, I certainly think that they have a place. And I have colleagues in this movement who believe they don't have a place ever. And, and, and they don't respect the medical doctors just simply because they're medical doctors. And so it's possible that maybe we can be like an umbrella, you know, this great, wonderful umbrella of people who don't eat animals for whatever reason. And we can come together on the things where we come together, but maybe we do need, you know, little kind of subgroups so that so that we can all feel nourished and nurtured at all times mm-hmm. now being something of a gadfly i want to be in all the groups i want to see what's going on <laughs> everywhere 
but I do think it's important not to get caught up in, oh, well, you did this animal rights action that I just don't think was the right way to do it. Well, you know, I wasn't there. It's not my business. They did it. I'm going to go on and do this. And I think so often we feel like everything reflects on us. So Mm -hmm. if a fellow animal rights person or a fellow vegan does something in a way that I wouldn't have done it, then my kind of unredeemed response to that is, oh my gosh, this makes me look bad. Mm -hmm. You know what? It's not about me. It's about Mm -hmm. saving the planet, saving the animals, trying to get some sanity into the healthcare system in this country and around the world. And if I don't like how somebody does it, then I can just do it a different way and Mm -hmm. let them... (laughs) do their thing. So back to your initial question about judging. It's like, I think for some of us, we just automatically judge, you know, there is that personality test that I think it's Myers-Briggs, where you can come out with INFJ or whatever. Anyway, J is one of the things that you can be. And that means judgmental. And I try so hard. I've tried to cheat on that test. So I wouldn't have the (laughs) J, but I'm all, I always get the J. And so my immediate just mental response to something is I see something happen in the world and immediately I judge it, (laughs) but I don't have to go online and talk about my judgment. I don't have to go to that person and say, well, I think that was really stupid unless it was, you know, something egregious, Mm -hmm. but I've got to understand people see this world in different ways. And I just need to stay focused in my lane. And I think we get strength from that. We stay focused Mm -hmm. in our lane, and then we can do our good work and let other people do theirs. Amen. That's such a great philosophy. I think also you talk a lot about meeting people where they are. Where where else can you? Exactly. Exactly. And and, And what do you know the percentage of people who come into veganism through the health angle? I mean, it's, it's a vast majority. Am I right? In the U.S., uh, somebody did a survey a few years ago, and I think it was like 51, 49 or something in the U.S., but in in the U.K., and I think in in Israel and some other places where veganism is very prevalent, it's all about the animals. I mean, just Mm. the the health is, there's it's the animals, and then you got some environment, and, you know, many of, of the ethical vegans in other countries the health is just an aside, which is really how it all started. When the vegan society started in the UK back in in the mid-1940s, it was a group of ethical vegetarians who were thinking, oh my gosh, all this milk we drink, that makes the veal happen. And these eggs that we eat, you know, they kill those baby boy chicks. And then the factory farming of chickens was just starting at that time. And so they became vegan, not knowing what would happen to them because there was one guy, his name was Dugald Semple, lived in the early 1900s in Scotland, and he was a back to the lander. So he just thought he would live really naturally. And he stopped eating all animal products, gave up alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and he did okay. (laughs) And these Mm -hmm. early vegans knew there was one guy who had done this and he'd been okay. And so they 
they started the vegan society and a lot of people started becoming, you know, what they call pure vegetarians, total vegetarians or, or, or vegans. But when I was there researching my very first book, my college thesis became my first book, Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. And one of the women who had been around in those early days said to me, we, we didn't know if our bones would disintegrate or if we'd perish in a fortnight. We did this out of pure, disinterested compassion, which is just so cool. But what happened was they had to bring the health part in because they noticed two things. One was that most of the people who did this were having all these great health results. Their type 2 diabetes was getting better. Just their heart disease was getting better. Their cholesterol was lowering. Their blood pressure was no longer elevated. But a few of those early vegans got very sick. And it was because of lack of vitamin B12 because we didn't know much about vitamin B12 at that time. And we know now that it is not reliably found in the plant kingdom because it's made from bacteria. Also, that it's very hard to metabolize, even if somebody is eating animal products once they get to be around age 50. So B12 supplementation is just really, really important for any vegan, any age, and for anybody over 50. They didn't know that in 1945. So it's, it's always been together. And then at that time, of course, there wasn't global warming or, or the threat of extinction of so many species, including our own, which is really making this an emergency situation. But they did see that we were losing topsoil that the meat industry was polluting the waterways, that we were using all this land to raise animal feed and, and graze cattle. And this plant food, these grains and beans could be feeding starving people. So all that has been around from the beginning. And now, of course, we know that because of climate change and the environment, this is crucial, crucial, crucial. I just saw a wonderful documentary that I would recommend to everybody. It's called Eating Ourselves to Extinction. Mm. And it's so powerful. And it's funny when you ask about the thing about judgmentalism and all that, mm. it's like, in some ways, I wish I didn't know that. I wish I didn't know it was such an emergency because I want to go tell people, you, stop eating this. You know? mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I know that's not the most effective way to do it. So even though it's an emergency, I still need to do my attraction activism by having what somebody else wants. We say in 12 steps, if somebody has, if you have what somebody else wants, they're going to do what you did to get it. And, yes. and to just be there with the information for those who want it, and hopefully uh, we'll get enough of a critical mass to turn things around. Mm. Yes. And speaking of documentaries, you kind of became a producer yourself, <laughs> kind of randomly. Like, how did that, how did that happen? Can you tell us about that story? Oh, well, your word random is just perfect because it, it really was. <laughs> this movement, I think, brings the best out in us and it helps us do things that we never thought we would be able to do. So yes. my show, my podcast, which is also still a radio show, it can get callers just like an old time radio. And this was 2015 and a gentleman called in, we were doing a book giveaway that day and he won. And when he was giving his contact info to the engineer, he asked if I would contact him. So I did. And he asked if I would produce his documentary about veganism and spirituality. 
Now, if he had just said, will you produce my documentary about veganism? I would have said, thank you, but I don't know how to produce a movie. And if he'd said, do you want to do my documentary about spirituality? Thank you, but I don't know how to produce a movie. But since he brought in my two passions, I Mm. figured I'll just say yes, and I'll learn later. So we started working together in 2015 and compassion, a prayer for compassion came out in 2019, had a big gala premiere in New York City and another one in London. And then Thomas Jackson, the filmmaker, and one of the other producers, Dr. Silas Rao, and this wonderful actor uh, from the UK uh, who had been in Game of Thrones playing Braun. Let's see, am I going to blank on his name? Jerome Flynn also joined the production team. So the three gentlemen did a, a tour of, of India with the film. So it was it was a great learning process. And a Main Street Vegan Productions is also part of Thomas Jackson's upcoming film called Compassion in Action. And, you know, I just hope there will be more because I think the documentaries on the health side and the ethical side and the environmental side are doing so much uh, for veganism. And, And this one, A Prayer for Compassion, was the first to look at the religions of the world, spiritual people, and why many now are becoming vegan and and bringing all God's creatures into the mix. Mm. And what was that experience like producing for the first time? Is something you want to continue? Oh, absolutely. It was a lot of work. I think by the time we had the New York City premiere, I I was almost catatonic because I hadn't Mm -hmm. been pacing myself and I was really, you know, staying up late and doing all kinds of things. I remember for that premiere, you know, we wanted to do it upright and we wanted to have, you know, the wine and all that kind of stuff. And this form was sent to us from the state of New York. And what I've learned since is that to serve wine at an event for which tickets are available to the public in New York City you have to do all the same paperwork as if you want to open a bar. (laughs) And I'm just like, I don't even drink. Why am I doing all this work (laughs) to try to have wine at this thing? But, you know, it was like an 18 page form just to have the wine. So there was a lot, but it was so gratifying. Oh my goodness. Because one of the things that that I really love is connecting people. I I wrote a book. In fact, my best-selling book of 20 years old, it's called creating a charmed life. And in there, one of my little essays is is called play your free square. And that is to just come to know, and maybe you have to ask somebody close to you. It's like the free square in the game of bingo. It's there. Everybody's got one. And it's just as valuable for winning the game as one of those things that you get just by luck or chance or strategy or whatever it is. So what's yours in life? What is just this natural thing that you're just so good at that you don't even think about it? And for me, it's meeting people and connecting with people. So I meet fascinating people, helpful people, famous people. It's just been something that's happened my whole life. So one of the ways that I was most helpful with the film was in bringing people in, introducing Thomas to people who are doing a lot in the vegan world and in some spiritual tradition. And he did find people from virtually every spiritual tradition I have ever heard of. And then, of course, they introduced him to more people. And it was this wonderful kind of of, uh, 
ripple effect so that now there's a, a very much stronger vegan spirituality movement than there was before that film. So there's something called the Interfaith Vegan Coalition, where people of, of uh, various religious traditions come together. A lot of us are going to be presenting in later this month for the Parliament of the World's Religions. And that's really cool because I told you that I was brought into all this uh, through yoga early on. And the very first yogi from India to come to the West was Swami Vivekananda. And he came to Chicago for this Parliament of the World's Religions in 1893. So to be participating in panels there, it's just it's incredible. And it also is telling me that the world of, of religion and spirituality is starting to see this because they have to. You know, what is that phrase from Buddha that three things cannot long be hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth? And the truth of what we do to animals is starting to come out. And, and all people of goodwill have to see this, and certainly people who believe in some kind of beneficent higher power, who believe that life has meaning and that we're here to make things better for everybody, now it's time to see it. And uh, Prayer for Compassion was part of that. Mm. And besides the producing, you've written... How many books? 13? <laughs> 13. Is that correct? Yes. 13. I'm working on number 14, and it's so interesting because it's really showing me what's going on in the outside world, and then having to know, okay, that exists, but I'm going to live in this world of knowing that this is what I'm supposed to do, and I'm just going to go forward. So this, mm. this 14th book is called Edge Like a Yogi, A Healthy Path to a Dazzling Third Act. And the first thing that a couple of agents that I talked to said, you can't write that book. Your platform is vegan. Your platform is not yoga. And it's like, okay, I've been vegan 37 years. I've been doing yoga 53 years. Why, why do you say that? And it's because I haven't been doing yoga on Instagram. But what I know is that the higher power, however you want to see that, planted this idea in my head. I've got the proposal written, it's the best work I've ever done, best writing I've ever done. And I just have to trust that the right people to help get it out into the world are there. But yeah, that'll be number 14. I want to do at least 15, a nice number, <laughs> maybe 18. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. That's incredible. I I wrote one book and it was mostly recipes and I'm, I was exhausted. <laughs> for like recipes are tough. Oh, Who thank was you. it? Somebody said that Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick and all those big books of the past, was asked why he wrote novels. And he said, it's easier than writing a cookbook. <laughs> and of course, you know, he was trying to be clever, but I think it's really true because I co-authored the Main Street Vegan Academy cookbook with J.L. Fields, who was a real food whisperer and cookbook person. And even though it was Main Street Vegan Academy graduate coaches who were providing most of the recipes, I mean, all the recipe testing and, and the photography and, oh, it's just so much easier to write a book about ideas. 
Well, I appreciate you saying that. I don't know if that's necessarily true in my eyes, but really amazing. I have to also tell you, Victoria, that I think it was after my show with you because I think you were on a retreat or something and that I started getting into Ayurveda ah. and just, yeah, researching that and figuring out my vata imbalance. And you were the, the catalyst for that. So first of all, thank you for that. Would you remember that? Oh, absolutely. I was at okay. the Ayurveda health retreat outside at Alachua, Florida, near Gainesville. <laughs> Wonderful place. And I have since taken through them 200-hour yoga teacher training online and lots of more Ayurveda courses. And I think Ayurveda is, is extraordinary and magnificent. And when you talk about the vata imbalance, I'm predominantly vata as well. I'm a vata pitta. You seem to be pure vata. I'm pretty, pretty, pretty vata. vata. <laughs> yes. And but my vata goes out of balance. And for people who don't know what is vata blow in, in Ayurveda, there are three body types, and you can be a combination. Most people are a combination of two. Um, a few people are a combination of all three. And the idea is, and it's so beautiful in terms of self-esteem, that you're not trying to change yourself. You're not trying to become a different type or more of one type than you are right now. You're trying to be in perfect alignment with your own arrangement that is in your DNA that came to you at the moment of conception. And maybe that means, you know, that you're like Ella and you're Vata, which means that you're likely to be thin and elegant and have a long neck and long fingers and kind of be like Audrey Hepburn. Or maybe you got some of that. And like me, I'm predominantly that, but I also have Pitta. And Pitta is more muscular and, and a little bit more fiery and a little bit more aggressive. And so, you know, that kind of balances it out a little bit just in my body type. But if Ella was saying, oh, no, I need more of that Pitta. No, she doesn't. She needs to be perfectly just what she is. And then Kapha is the other one. And Kapha is a little bit rounder body type. And Kaphas are just so kind and generous and wonderful. And then that's balanced with some of these other two. And so what happens is that one of them can get out of balance. And it's very often Vata, regardless of makeup. Just because Vata's flighty, and if you travel too much, or if you're out in drafts and you get too cold, or if you've been eating uh, too much cold food and iced beverages and stuff like that, or, or you've been under a lot of stress, your Vata just goes, woo, and you got to get it back to where it's just right for you. So I love it. It's not without, sometimes I want everything to fit. And so I want all the raw food people to fit in. And if you got a lot of vata going on, they say, you know, you don't want to do a lot of raw food. And then mm -hmm. I want all the whole food plant-based thing to work. And a lot of those folks are saying no oil. Ayurveda says, if you're vata, you need some oil to kind of ground you down. So I think sometimes we just need to, you know, we'll be vegan for the animals. And then the other stuff we'll just play with and experiment yeah. with and see what works for us. Yes. Yes. A lot of the people we work with are not yoga people. They would describe themselves as not yoga person. And I was not a yoga person until I was, and, <laughs> you know what I mean? So one thing that I really work on is, is encouraging people to have an open mind about yoga. What do you say to people who are especially on this journey into veganism and, you know, talk about ahimsa and, and really working on being mindful and present. 
so I, I often think of yoga as, as more of a moving meditation than anything. How do you, how do you see it and how do you help people maybe open their minds to it? Right. Well, for me, it's, it's the whole picture of Raja yoga and, and the posture part is just one of the eight limbs and two of those limbs have five parts each. <laughs> so when you put all of that stuff up there and then you see asana, you know, what we think of is downward dog and all that. That's just such a little bitty part of yoga. And so for me, I try to incorporate all of these aspects of, of Raja yoga philosophy into my life. Now I know the people that you're talking about who are like, wait a minute, I'm not a yoga person. You mm -hmm. know, it's enough to get them to do a downward dog and then maybe do a little deep breathing and then maybe just sit quietly just for a minute or two and get in a little bit of that concentration and, and meditation piece. But for me, because this is really what my life is based around the idea of all the eight limbs. So the yamas or the moral precepts and the very first one is ahimsa. So that's just so much. Why are you a vegan? Well, well I, I couldn't not be, you know, people say, well, I don't like animals the way you like animals. But I remember somebody said to me once, I don't love animals. I hate suffering. So, you know, it's just ahimsa. That's just such a big thing. And, and, and there are other, you know, moral precepts. And then you've got the nayamas, which is about how you, you take care of yourself and, and, and live in such a way that you're, you're being responsible through this lifetime on this earth with the understanding that there's more to it, that the big question is, who am I? And that we're here to do good and we're here to help others and we're here to make a difference, all that. Yes, that's so true. But the bigger true, even than that, the capital T truth is we're here to find out who we are. And yoga says, you are Brahman, you are the divine, you are, you are it, you know, and that's not very different from what all spiritual traditions talk about. I was raised Catholic. And I remember as a little girl, the Baltimore catechism, from what did God make you? He made me from himself because there was nothing else. <laughs> and, and it's just that beautiful idea that, that you're divine. I'm divine. All these animals are divine. The ones we love, the ones we eat at our very center, there is this beautiful radiant light. And the quantum physicists talk about this very thing. And if we can just get that through whatever our path is, not everybody's going to be into yoga. There are so many paths to find this truth. There, there are enough for every person alive today, alive in the future, alive in the past. It's all there for us and whatever appeals. And sometimes I'll get the cultural appropriation thing today. When people will say, well, you're not Indian and yoga comes from India, which of course it does. And I have great reverence to Indian culture and tradition. But when I was standing in that library at age 17, looking for God, what fell out for me off those shelves were the books about yoga. So that's the gift that 
my divine essence wanted me to have in this lifetime. And for somebody else, you know, it was Buddhism, or it was uh, Kabbalah, or it was Christian mysticism, or, you know, I don't know what somebody else's path is. I just know that once you're on one, you just feel safer. <laughs> and and it's just good. Hmm. Can we talk about aging for for a moment. Oh, sure. Because, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I love when you talk about aging, but I think our audience is, is in that, in that age group where we're starting and mostly women who are just starting to say, they often come saying, you know, I'm just starting to, to feel old or feel like I'm invisible. Do you, do you hear that? Oh, and, I and, felt it. I mean, yeah, I remember I this was just, I'm 71. And so I've, I've had some time to, you know, look at aging, but right around menopause, which was a big deal. And so many of the health people will say, oh, it's no big deal. If you're really healthy, it's no big deal. Please. I, maybe it's no big deal for some people, but for me, it was like, I woke up one morning and it's like, there's been invasion of the body snatchers in my bedroom because last night I had a flat tummy and a round butt. And this morning they've been like reversed. I mean, it was just like, what is happening to my body? And then I would find just like going to a Starbucks or a juice bar or something like that. I'd be there in line waiting. And the person behind the counter would see the younger person who came in later. It really was like invisible. So I decided I don't want that. So I started doing research. I actually wrote a book back in 2004 called Younger by the Day. And it's a really good book. It's a day book. I, people write to me and say, I read that book every day. I'm starting from my 14th year. <laughs> and, and yet it was a little bit arrogant for me to think of younger by the day. like the, Because the truth is all, all life, all all beings even plants they're they're born they grow they have the opportunity to reproduce and then they start to slow down and then eventually move on to the next adventure and that's the way it is so i think it's very important for anybody of any age to get it that this is the direction in which it's going if you are lucky you will get to be old and people are like, anti-aging. It's like, you don't want to be really anti-aging because that mm -hmm. means you want to leave here early and nobody wants that. So I think we need to certainly take fabulous care of ourselves because it really does make a huge difference. But it doesn't mean, just like we were talking about yoga, there are yoga postures that I could do 30 years ago that I can't do now. So the wheel, for example, which is just a back bend. My back can still do that. And on a big medicine ball, all I have to do is get on that thing, lean back. My back is just something great. My wrists don't bend that much these days. So while I can do it on the ball, I can't do it the regular way. And am I going to try it and injure myself and then not be able to do anything? Or am I going to be down on myself? Oh, it's so terrible. I'm so old. I can't do this thing. No, it's like, I can use the ball or I can do a bridge or I, you know, there's just, there are so many options. So I think the main thing for aging is that we remember this inner light. This inner light does not age. So I'm going to tell you a little story that is going into my new book. This is about a woman named Iris. So when I was 
20, I moved to the suburbs of Chicago to work in the library of the Theosophical Society. It's about like Eastern religions and stuff like that. So whenever we had extra work in the library, we would call on Iris, who was a theosophist. She's been a spiritual uh, student all all her life, kind of a, a yogi. She would come in to help. Now, Iris was in her late 70s, and she had white hair piled up on her head. But I knew whenever she was anywhere, she lit up the room. So I'm 20. And it's like, wait a minute, something's not right here. What is it about this woman that she just has this charisma and this beauty that just will not stop? And being around her a while and then other people like that, I got it that whenever your focus has been on your inner light for years and decades, then that's what people see. Did Mm -hmm. she have some lines and wrinkles? Yeah, probably. But that isn't what you saw. And so for me, for going forward, yes, it's really important to take care of my body because all the physiological stuff is true and it's plain of manifestation. So not good to let that go. But even more important than that is to know that I am eternal. I am light. I am worthy at 71, just like I was at 17. And that seems to really make a difference. Well, your inner light shines <laughs> so bright, Victoria. It's it's just amazing. And I feel so grateful to know you. And I want to thank you for just everything that you you do in this in this world, on this planet. Thank you. Ella, that is so mutual and, and bless your heart. And thank you for shining your light so brightly. Thank you. Can you tell people a little bit more about um, the Academy and when your next group is? (laughs) Yeah. So thank you. Going on with that. Yeah. Well, that's just like, you know, you could ask me to show pictures of of my family (laughs) because the Academy really, really is a family. And I think that's a wonderful thing. We used to be an in-person program before COVID and now we're live on Zoom and It's very intense. It's seven days. Our next class is coming at the end of January, all weekend days. And we have a three-tiered program. So on one tier, you're getting vegan principles. So you will come out of the Main Street Vegan Academy course being an expert on all things vegan. So we have medical doctors doing the health. We have a dietitian doing nutrition. We have a vegan fashion designer. We have a vegan attorney with animal rights and animal law. I talk about vegan history. And then we have communication principles. So you know all this stuff. And there are some books and podcasts you need to complete before the program. So how do you get it out there? How do you get it across to a client, to an audience? to a friend, into an article or into a blog post. So we've got classes in public speaking and how to do a food demo, working with mixed and transitional families and coaching techniques, really getting in there with a lot of practice on what's the difference between a coach and a consultant and a counselor And how do you work with somebody in this interesting way where you want to listen to them, 
and meet their needs, but also give them information that they can use to make this lifestyle work. And then we have business principles at the top of our pyramid. And this is how to become a solopreneur and how to get your digital marketing going and just how to be a business person in this wonderful world. You were talking about when people used to think that vegans were like leftover hippies. And, you know, I think there are a lot of vegans who who, maybe that still applies, or if they had been alive during the hippie time, (laughs) they would have done that. And so for us, sometimes business is like, oh, isn't that, you know, evil? It's like, well, it can be, but it can also be very, very good. So we have an amazing faculty. We have fabulous follow-up. So we really are a family with a private Facebook group and reunions and, and other things. Your certification, your VLCE certification is good forever, but we do have continuing education as, as well. And it's just, it's magical. And people have said to me, other than having my children, this is the best thing I've ever done. So do check us out. We're at MainStreetVegan.net. You just click on Academy and uh, get your questions answered. You can also sign up there for a 15-minute call with me if you have questions that aren't answered on the website. Mm, Nice. We are going to put all those links uh, in the show notes So everyone will have them. Victoria, I could talk to you forever, but I think we're going to wrap up here. Thank you again for taking the time and energy to be here and and bring us all this amazing, beautiful information. Thank you, Ella. 